Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me today. A great guest today, a very experienced communicator, and her name is Kim Charlton, and she's had a fantastic career and a career fairly typical of many of you in the audience out there. She began as a print journalist in regional New South Wales after a school's career advisor suggested that she was cynical enough to work in the media. Her career has taken her around the world and given her involvement in some of the highest profile political, public safety and disaster response incidents of her generation. She started with the Department of Immigration on the day they opened the Woomera Detention Centre and spent the next six and a half years dealing with that very complex work environment. Kim was the architect of the Queensland Police Service's use of social media as a public information channel back in 2010-2011. Kim has always taken an integrated approach to both issues in media management, public relations and reputation management using paid, owned and earned channels to get that crucial and effective plank working for you. These days, she runs her own public relations and communications agency called The Faster Horse, where she deals with culture building within government departments. She juggles a range of niche clients and generally has a great time. She's worked for the Department of Agriculture, the Queensland Police Service, the National Disability and Insurance Agency, and also for the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland. And apart from that, she likes to run marathons. Kim, thanks for coming on to GovComs. Thank you. Great career. So where do we start? Let's go back to those days of journalism. So you're sitting across from the careers advisor. What did you say that made them think, oh, yeah, she's cynical enough to be a reporter? He happened to be my level three English teacher as well um, in Tenerfield High School. There were a grand total of two of us in that class. So (laughs) he had some insight into my personality. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I'm still not quite sure. Um, But, yeah, he he just had made this throwaway line, and I was like, Oh, yeah, because, you know, I was always interested in public affairs and, you know, sort of uh, international events and that sort of thing. So, I thought, well, see what see what happens. Was cynicism a bit bit harsh or was it more curiosity in that, that you did like to ask questions? Oh, I, I am fairly sarcastic at times. So, yeah, he wasn't – he might have been a touch harsh for a 17-year-old, but um, he wasn't far off the mark. And so what did you learn in those early days of, of going into regional newspapers? Because, you know, you're the jack of trades, aren't you? You've really, you know, you do the police round, you do the court round, you do the, you know, the sports stories, you take the photos. What did you learn about becoming, you know, a good storyteller, a, a good communicator in those early days? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's nothing quite like going into a regional newspaper. Within three months, I was, you know, sort of the late sub. Um, I was put straight on the police round. So I spent the first couple of weekends driving around to every single country town that we covered and introducing myself to the local coppers. 
Um, I got them so well trained that they'd ring up if something happened and wouldn't talk to any other journalists, which got a bit awkward at times. Um, so, but, you know, it really was around that um, uh, being a well-rounded individual. So, you know, and also having the courage to back decisions. So I remember one night about 11.30, which was quite late for us, um, there was a significant incident that occurred. Um, I couldn't get onto the editor because it was before the days of mobile phones. So, at, you know, my first year on the job, I made the decision to pull the front page story, write a new one and put it in. Um, so I went to bed that night super concerned about whether I'd still have a job the next day. Um, I did. So, you know, it is that uh, giving you that scope to really become a well-rounded um, individual and that's something that has stood me um, in really good stead in my, you know, as I, as I moved in, into social media and in, you know, just uh, communications in a government sense is that having that ability to turn your hand to anything and the confidence to back your own decisions. Mm. But it does, those early days, you know, when you are a young reporter, you do, you know, it's the gift, isn't it, that you get to speak to everyone from the mayor of the local town and the senior business people and, and the leaders in the community all the way through to the kids in the primary schools. And you have to find a way to, to connect to get the story. Yeah, absolutely. So you, how you do really you do, do that? Where, where did you, like, there's, there's an innate skill around that curiosity, but how, how, how have you learnt to become good with people? Um, it really is, and I think you've absolutely nailed it, curiosity um, and, and being, you know, actually asking questions, looking for motivations um, and, you know, sort of learning to um, put out the same energy that they're putting out and sort of taking yourself to their level. Um, and that's something that stands you, you know, once again, as you progress through the career, through your career, being able to gauge energy levels, engage uh, people's, um, you know, uh, sorry, this is uh, being able to match um, energy and and get an, a really quick understanding of what you know what is someone's motivations, what are their concerns, and how can I help assist with that? That's you know that's something that really. Uh, has spread across, you know, my entire career, I guess. Mm, that's a, I think that's a really interesting point in th that we don't often think about that sort of, you know, ethereal, you know, unknown sort of, as you say, it's that energy, it's that engagement, it's that point. And, and how do you activate that? Because ultimately that's what we're looking for, isn't it? We're looking for a, a way to motivate, to inspire, to engage, to, to get to the core and to the heart of the issue because that's the gold that's going to help to, you know, bring to life the connections. And I, I think that that curiosity, that empathy and that understanding that, but as you have explained it there as energy, I think is a great lesson for the audience is to, is to be aware of your energy when you are talking to people. One of the things that we're, you know, we've been talking about over the last few months, in fact, probably actually more than that now, it goes back for several months, is this notion of communications people having to lead in this new environment and having to get up and get out behind from behind your desk and going and talking to people and building teams and, and bringing people along. And that point of energy and, and activating it is just so critically important to that leadership role 
that you have to you know drive and guide it and use that energy to get to the essence that that um, that, that you need to, in storytelling. So, take take us from the journey then from from journalism. Where did you go then? What what was the the next step and and why did you take that next step? Um, I moved briefly to the United States. Well, actually, not so briefly to the United States. Went for three months, came back four years later with a husband, um, as you do. So I ended up working in a regional newspaper in New Hampshire. Oh, yeah. uh, it, was a, it was a startup Sunday newspaper. Okay. Um, and that was intriguing it, it, to see the differences in journalism in the US, um, but also it started to give me a bit of an insight into the limitations of the role in that, you know, I was on the other side of the world and I was writing exactly the same stories that I was writing four years ago and nothing's really changed that much. Mm. So, and I guess that I became a degree of frustration for me was that I wasn't uh, influencing good social outcomes. Um, so when I got sick of New Hampshire, New Hampshire winters, which was exactly one year, um, I dragged my poor husband back to Australia and I started work at uh, Central Sydney Area Health Service, actually. That was my first role um, in public affairs. So I got to do super interesting stuff like help film the old RPA series, oh, yeah. um, you know, in the middle of, you know, operating theatres and it was it was a really uh, exciting look at public affairs and I guess that really shaped my career in that I've always had very um, real frontline roles. You know, I'm, mm. I've never worked for central agencies. I've always worked for agencies that have an immediate connection to the community and actually have outcomes for the community at a very, you know, as the absolute base level of what uh, what my work was. Mm. That, that's an interesting point. Now, I'm also intrigued to know the differences between journalism in Australia and the United States. We might just park that for the moment because that'll, that'll take us down a journalism path. And I, <laughs> maybe we can talk – because interesting you talk about that series, RPA, when, you know, we're now in the world of – you know, everyone can be a media company, branded content. And it was a real forerunner, wasn't it? You know, because we have, you know, the Department of Immigration then had Border, whatever it's called, you know, so the, all those, you know, reality te television series about people coming in and out of Australia and all of the trouble that they get into. But that RPA series was a, that was a real groundbreaker, wasn't it, in terms of telling that story, you know, bringing people in, into the life of a major hospital in the middle of Sydney. Absolutely. And it was a real honour to be involved in something like that because it we were interacting with people at their most vulnerable point um, and providing them with the support and the coverage to be able to do it in a way that we weren't, um, you know, we weren't taking advantage of the vulnerability. It was something that we were always really conscious of. And so... From, from the organisational point of view, so from the Central Sydney Health Service, what were they trying to achieve from taking on that, what became a super popular television show? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's what a lot of government departments would like to do is to provide the public with a better understanding of the work they do and the importance of the work they do. Um, obviously, I was a super junior uh, communications officer then, so I was not involved in the decision-making around that. I just simply uh, assisted with the filming. So I'm not privy to the decision-making that went on around it. 
I think it was incredibly successful and it um, did a lot to uh, remove some of the, um, you know, the secrecy around health, just the way that, you know, we try to do that in a whole range of ways in government communications these days. But that, that, that's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because now, you know, the capability and the ability to, you know, back in those days, trying to, you know, stand up something like RPA would have cost an enormous amount of money to be able to bring it to life. But that ability, you know, in this day and age, now that the, the factors of media production and distribution have been essentially democratised through technology and improvements in technology, what... Well, what are some of the barriers that you see that others mightn't think, hang on, we've got a great story to tell. Why don't we, you know, maybe it doesn't have to go to broadcast television, but certainly, you know, you could fire up a, your own series and broadcast it on, you know, a YouTube channel and do your best to promote it to get, to get people to get eyeballs on it. So how, how might that start to take hold a little bit more than it has so far? Yeah, look, it's something that... Um, as I said, I've got a real focus on developing your own channels and using your own channels. So I'm presently um, working with uh, Queensland uh, Corrective Services and it's an intriguing role in that it was a new department. It only stood up um, in December 2017. So, and Corrections is probably the last bastion of uh public service where people really don't see what you do or how you do it. So, you know, we're doing a whole range of things using our own channels to open those doors a little bit. Um, the commissioner is an incredibly, um, incredibly committed to being ethical and transparent and actually, um, you know, showing the community the work we do and the role that we play in public safety. So we've got some really exciting stuff that we're doing on our own channels in that space, and I hope to do more, um, you know, in in the in the next twelve months. But it is it's always intrigued me the um, the risk appetite for doing that sort of thing by doing it on your own channels. You have total control huh. of the messaging and you know how how your story is portrayed. When you think about it, every government department would have quite junior staff who talk to the public every single day of the week, and they are given um, uh, the freedom to do that, and yet a lot of communications professionals are tied up in layers of approvals um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, for instance, a government department that I probably won't name when I started there had 27 layers of clearance around putting out a media release. The same government department had call centres employing AO3s and AO4s to talk to the public every day. Mm. Um, so I find that there's a disconnect there between um, the formal communication channels and what I prefer to use, you know, is public engagement, which is what we're doing every day of the week. Mm. And by using your own channels and using social media, you have this amazing insight into... Uh, you know, it's it's that um, inside, uh, you know, outside in approach to how you do your business. You get an understanding of what the community thinks about you, what the community needs from you from a communication perspective, and you have immediate feedback on whether what you're doing is working or whether you need to reframe it. 
So it's that amazing insight that, you know, you can then take to senior executive and provide them with real-time feedback on how you're travelling in um, your goals, uh, you know, to build your reputation or to manage an issue or, or that sort of thing. So I'm intrigued that there is a uh, not the risk appetite um, or there's a, a disconnect between the concept of formal communications as opposed to community engagement. Hmm. Well, th- there's a huge amount in that answer, uh, actually a huge amount. So I'd I'm, I'm like to focus maybe to, to start with just on what are some of the things that you're doing in, inside the corrections to, to tell the story of, of the um, Queensland Correction Services? Yeah, look, we're doing really simple stuff, um, but it's helping us achieve, um, you know, our strategic goals. So the the Commissioner recently launched uh, Corrections 2030, which is a strategic roadmap for us going from a brand new department to, you know, what we envisage as being, you know, a top tier uh, frontline public safety agency. Um, And that communication's a really important role in that. Another really important part is we're growing um, quite significantly due to a number of government decisions. So we've got to recruit a significant number of people. By, and the work of my team has a really important role in making people think about us as a viable employer, employer of choice and actually giving people a bit of an insight into what the job entails. So one of the things we did um, when we stood up our new website was to develop a careers page um, where we've profiled a whole range of different career roles within corrections, um, you know, using, using our staff to actually tell the story of what it's like to work in corrections and what their role really is as opposed to what you see on Orange is the New Black. Um, and it's, you know, it's been a really exciting way to open the doors a little bit to the community and change perspective, change um, perceptions or even just put us on a radar that we weren't on before. So how did you, because that to me is, an, you know, it's it's an obvious one, isn't it? It's, it's an easy one in many respects because you've got the talent who are sitting there and they're the real life people who can explain that. You can then create the content. But then how did you, how did you find that audience? How did you identify people who may in fact be considering a life of, as, as a, a correctional services officer and how did you make get the content to them? Yeah, so we did that in a couple of ways, um, and you know it's a combination of of owned media, social media. We, we're quite active on on Facebook in particular because we know that um, you know people share the stories, people who work for us share the stories with other people, and every time we post one of those profiles, um, the organic reach is really quite remarkable. Um, particularly when we're looking to employ people in regional Queensland, it can be really challenging, um, you know, to actually reach people who want to work in Rockhampton, for instance. But by taking this approach and using um, social media and and targeting Rockhampton, we, you know, we've, we've had quite remarkable success in attracting people 
to um, to apply for for positions in that in that area where previously we'd really struggled by using traditional just you know job advertisements mm. um, and that sort of thing. And you've been able to directly tie the activity, the content activity, to uh, increases in inquiries and uh, re- expressions of interest and and, and such. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've been, um, uh, you know, evaluating as we go along, monitoring the number of click-throughs, that sort of thing. Yeah. And the, as I say, the increase in interest has been really quite significant. I love the fact also, and, and this is a key again, you know, we keep banging on about it and over many, many podcasts, is this notion of uh, communication and content has to be connected to a strategic goal or a strategic objective because if it's not you've got to stop doing it but the fact that you have designed your plan you have designed the work of your team to create content that is directly attributing to strategic objectives or creating the reality of 2030 is absolute best practice yeah and look that's a question that my team asks themselves every day which one of the key principles of corrections 2030 does this tick off on if it doesn't tick off on at least one, why are we doing it? Mm. So, you know, it's not around content creation for the sake of it. It is very much to help us achieve our goal as an organisation. And the other super important thing about the work that we're doing and tying it to our strategic uh, priorities is it's helping build a culture and helping our people hear the way that we talk about them, the hear the way we talk about their work. Um, and it actually builds a pride in the organisation, a pride in the uniform, um, a sense of common purpose. So, you know, that's, um, don't underestimate the importance of, from an internal communication perspective of what you are doing externally. Um, that was something I learned at police. It was really interesting. When I started at police, they were coming off a really rough trot and there was um, a media trope that was running pretty hard around Queensland police at that time that, you know, the only stories you saw were negative stories. Yes. So that was the only way that our officers saw themselves reflected in to the public was negatively. So when I started the Facebook, um, it was quite extraordinary how quickly it became apparent that what the engagement on social media did was to give the general public the chance to express their their thanks, their appreciation, their respect for our officers in a way that our officers had never heard before. And it was uh, the change in morale was palpable really really quickly and it totally changed the confidence levels in the organization and we were able to actually change the way the media reported on us um it was i heard a very wise person once put it far better than i've I've been able to that by the time you're on the front page of the newspaper the community's already made their mind up about that issue that the men's mainstream media doesn't report news anymore it reports sentiment by being in social and actually telling your story and using your channels to tell your story, you influence sentiment and therefore you influence mainstream reporting. No question. Absolutely. And I think that's a great insight that people need to understand is that a lot of that external facing 
communication and, and content, while perhaps not specifically designed for your internal audiences, that consumption of of that message uh, is very, very powerful internally. Um, I've just come off a, uh, working with the England rugby coach at the recent Rugby Union World Cup, and we ran a, a web series called Rising Suns. And quite strategically, we were speaking to the team through this project that was notionally for the fans and the supporters and for everybody else. But we very clearly were targeting a lot of the messaging because we knew the players were watching it. And it, gave, and it, ga- it gave them a sense of, oh, okay, so that's what he's saying in the meetings. That's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying. That, okay, I'm getting it. I'm getting it time and time again. And it's that reinforcement of those key messages that you then need into the culture that then drives whatever sort of performance it is that you're looking for. So that's a, that's a great example. And I think I get, there's a couple of other points that you raised in that earlier um, answers that I do want to address with you because approvals is often um, you know the bugbear of so many people who are working in communication. They have a great idea, they want to get it to market as quickly as they possibly can because the context is there, the moment's right. You know it's only going to work in this next period of time, so we have to move and we've got to get it there quickly. How? What advice do you have to people to, to improve or to reduce those layers of approvals such that they can take advantage of, of, the, of the context, which is often so powerful in, in communication? Yeah, look, timing is absolutely everything. Um, I have been blessed in my career to be able to work closely with leaders who get communications. Um, who understand, like literally I walked into the police commissioner's office and he was a fabulous man, an absolute um, natural communicator and incredibly empathetic, didn't have a computer on his desk. Um, He was of an age where he didn't, you know, he was not, you know, computer savvy, let alone digital, digital savvy. And I said, oh, I've started a Facebook page. And he went, great, what's that? (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) <laughs> that, you know, having that trust uh, and, you know, developing that trust with your senior executive. Um, and that goes back to a comment I made earlier about um, understanding people's motivations and concerns and actually reflecting that back to them is being able to demonstrate that you've got an understanding of the strategic priorities, you've got an understanding of the risk appetite and the concerns why there is concerns around certain risks and how they can be mitigated um, and actually demonstrating that. But, you know, finding leaders who actually understand the importance of communication and have the trust in you to show the, uh, the, the judgment and the responsibility to, you know, to be able to take advantage of things in a timely manner it's, um, I've been blessed. I, I really have. I understand the challenges that, that do exist a lot of, in a lot of other organisations. But I think, well, I, I think you build, you build that confidence through performance. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think you've also absolutely nailed the key point, which is around um, the risk appetite. That's, yep. the, that's the key for comms people to understand how and, and again, it's just like when they're thinking about the audience that they're trying to communicate internally, what's in the minds and what's in the hearts and what's in the heads of, of the leadership and senior executives manage organisations through the prism of risk. And so therefore, 
we have to position communication programs as part of that framework to be able to give them an idea of, we understand risk, we understand you know what the potential is, we understand where it's rated, but we also understand the benefits that can be uh, achieved if in fact we take this you know opportunity that um, or this idea that we come forward with. So really go on, sorry. An important part of that risk conversation is the risk of doing nothing, the risk of not communicating at this point in time. And that's a part of the conversation that's too often ignored. Mm. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. And I think that's, you know, if, if people take one thing out of today, that I think that is, that, that's the gift because that unlocks this approvals processes, worries, because that's just people scared. You know, that's approvals as in I'm, I'm not confident enough to let that go. But if we're going to be able to do that, we have to really think about the leadership, think about what their concerns and worries are, and to be able to frame our arguments and, and our process in, you know, to help them, I suppose, to, to get past some of those barriers. So as, as, they, as Kim says, the risk of us not doing this is X, Y, and Z. So you know, let's build that confidence. And I think over time, because I think the other uh, point that you raised also earlier is that there's that constant, uh, there's that ability to be able to constantly measure, gather the data, uh, tell the story behind the data in such a way, again, that is going back to the senior leadership that's saying, hey, you know, we're investing this certain amount of money and effort and time and, and, and resourcing, but look at, the, you know, look at the results that we're achieving. And I think, again, that's got to have been a key to your success. Yeah, it's um, being able to tell those stories in real time. It's incredibly rich for a leader to be able to put out a message and for you to be able to go back to them in an hour and go, this is the feedback you're getting from the community. This is the feedback we're getting internally. This messaging needs to be tweaked a little bit because people don't understand it or it's not resonating. Um, you know, it's incredibly powerful if you can harness that that sort of relationship and that trust. And I've been, as I say, I've been blessed to be working to have had the opportunity to work with some truly fine um, leaders who understand the power of communication. Now, we could speak for hours about all of this and <laughs> um, we won't today because we generally try to keep it to about half an hour, but we're already a bit over. But there is one question that, that I'd like to finish on. And this is this, you know, this issue of capability. You know, so it's one thing, you know, it's great for Kim. Yep, she's been, you know, she started in regional journalism. She got the ability to understand not only how to write, not only how to engage with people, but design, layout. She's comfortable with images. She's comfortable with video. You know, it's a it's that journalistic skill set that really is is the key. But when you look in most government departments and agencies, yes, they're starting to move in this direction, but generally the capability isn't quite there where it is at the moment. What is your recommendation to organisations who think, okay, we've got to get on this journey now. We've got to start you know, taking ownership of our media uh, on our own channels. What, what, are, what are some of the things that they could do first that, that can start the flywheel moving? look for your storytellers and they may not be in your comms team. Look for the people who are the deeply authentic voice of your organisation, who absolutely nail your strategic messaging, but who bring your organisation to life. Um, and, you know, that goes back to you were talking about Queensland Police having a sense of humour. That sense of humour, we agonised over that when we first started the channels. 
But more and more, we started to reflect the people who worked in the organisation. And if you know any coppers, they have a wicked sense of humour because it's the only thing that keeps them upright. So we reflected that. We started to actually, the, the, um, you need to have an authentic voice in across all of your communication channels because otherwise internally it's not going to play. Externally it's just going to be weird and it doesn't progress your reputation. So, you know, find your storytellers and especially if you are, you know, looking at social and your own channels, those storytellers are probably going to be the smart asses who crack the jokes and, you know, crack up the entire office. They... And they, you'll find them in um, unusual areas. So, you know, we're always looking for custodial staff who have a good understanding of the strategic priorities but who are genuine and authentic and, that, you know, those are the messages that we amplify. Those are the voices that we try to use but also learn from as a communication team. Fantastic. So there you go, audience. There is your homework for this week. Go out into your organisation. As Kim said, they're probably not, as you're sitting listening to this, if, if you're at work and look around, they're not in the room with you now. So you've got to, over the next couple of weeks, find the storytellers, find the authenticity, find the people who can bring the strategic message to life in a language and with an energy, going back to that point about the energy, that authenticity, that, that engagement, those great storytellers and start to see how you can bring them as part of your team going forward. There's so much more to talk about, Kim. We could go on forever. But thank <laughs> you so much for, for coming on to GovComs today. And audience, so many value bombs, as, uh, as they say, in, in that um, uh, conversation with Kim. So much value, you know, that, that notion of strategy and making sure that whatever you're doing on any given day at any time is connected to your strategic objectives. It's like just, that's just 101. You've got to get started on that. Find those authentic people. Find the leaders. Give the confidence. Get the data. Tell the stories and start the flywheel. And I think Kim also made a really good point there about, you know, just, just getting started, just getting going. You know, you don't have to have the whole nine yards. You know, you don't have to have the whole lot, but, you know, start, start down a particular channel, make some, you know, get some data, make some decisions about where you need to be, get into your rhythm, get into your stride, start the, you know, you've heard me before talk about the, the juggler, start with two balls and then a little bit further down, you know, you can have a flamethrower and a machetes and whatever else, but just get started, just start telling that story. So to Kim, thank you. Uh, for coming on to GovCom. So much wisdom there for our audience, and I know they'll be very grateful uh, for that. And you're, how, how can people get in contact with you if they'd like to continue the conversation? Oh, I'm on all sorts of channels. I'm Om Shadiddle on Twitter. Um, we've also got the Faster Horse um, website and uh, Twitter account and Facebook page. Um, yeah, I'm just about everywhere. Findable. Very findable. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you very much, and good luck with those uh, marathons into the future. Um, I'm sure you'll you'll uh, you'll do do great things uh, with your marathon running. And to you, the audience, thank you for coming back. We've gone a little bit over time this week, but really, I couldn't not ask those questions. And I've got to tell you, I had about another. I've got written down about another 10 questions here that I do. So Kim Charlton will be back. She will be back at some point in time. <laughs> 
if, if we're nice to us. So um, thank you, Kim, and thank you to the audience for coming back once again. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with another guest from the great world of government communications. Thank you very much for coming, and for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.